So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we will begin at verse 32 and we will go through the first 11 verses of chapter 5. The idea that we looked at in the Heidelberg this morning of the that dishonesty bringing judgment on the whole church really does come out in this passage today. And so we'll be looking at that idea as we consider um, the early church dealing with an issue within from within. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word. Again, we pray that you would guide us through it as we um, open it, as we seek to learn from it, as we seek to learn more about you and the gospel and the hope that we have. And Lord, also how then we can be changed by that uh, ourselves and offer that to others. And uh, we pray, Lord, that again, teach our hearts, mold us, convict us of our sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, or this week, as I looked at the passage before us, it made me think of the idea that there many times in life there are a large group of people that have to suffer because of the sins of just a few. I think it's one of the hardest ideas that we have to deal with in life and learn is that those few people can really disrupt normal for a lot of people. Um, great example of this is airports 20 years ago. I mean, airports are still not like great places or anything, but at least they were pretty laid back. Air travel was considered fun by some people. Uh, now, if you plan to fly anywhere... What do you have to do, even inside our own country, if you want to just fly a short distance? You have to go through, take your shoes off, every single bag is searched, you go through this x-ray scanner that you have to walk through with your hands up and everything, and it scans your whole body, literally, inside and out. And if you're lucky, they'll pull you aside and do a more thorough search to make sure you're not carrying anything dangerous like a bottle of shampoo. Or anything like that. Why is that? Why do we all have to do that? Everybody who gets on an airplane. Because a few idiots decided to use airplanes as weapons. One person decided to hide a bomb in a shoe. And so we all have to take our shoes off now. One person tried to put a bomb in his underwear. So we have to go through x-ray scanners. All of us. For one person. Air travel is ruined for billions because... There are a few psychotic murderer types out there. It's too bad. Students learn this in school as well. Because of a few loud students, the whole class gets to miss recess. Probably experienced that before. I remember those days. I was sometimes the loud kid. Or in a family, one sibling gets slime in the carpet. Right? We are familiar with slime at our house anyway. Guess what? Nobody can make slime now. That one ruined it for everybody. We see the same in Scripture. Why is that? Why does God do things like that? One person sins, the whole family gets destroyed. <clears throat> Why would choose, or God choose to destroy an entire family, for instance, because the dad of the family decided to sell some silver from Jericho. Remember the story of Achan, where the entire family and all of their livestock got stoned and burned. 
Or why does Uzzah, remember he was carting the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and an ox stumbled, an animal stumbled, and he reached over to grab the Ark, and when he did, he died. The Lord struck him down. Or why did God cause the earth to swallow up 250 people just because this person that they decided to side with, Korah, uh, was rebelled against Moses? Well, they all died. Why does God do that? Well, I think today's passage um, is going to be a little bit different. Almost kind of the tails are turned or the tides are turned a little bit. We have just a few receiving this type of judgment, but the whole church, as we read through this, is caused to have great fear because of what happened. Why do you think God would want the whole church to see this kind of judgment take place? Why not just deal with these people in private? God, in dealing with people, often dealt with the whole for a sake for the sake of a few. Lest we see any kind of injustice on God's part, we first need to understand the sin that is at the base of this, so we'll talk about that. But we also need to come to a better understanding of what the idea of the fear of the Lord even means, which is what we see in this passage this morning. So as we look at it, we'll consider uh, three main ideas from the text, the church united, the church divided, and then the church filled with fear. And so with that, let's read the text starting at verse or chapter 4, verse 32. Let's stand together as we read from God's holy word. Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the, of the things that belonged to him was his own, But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down his feet, at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. A bit of a different tone from the stories that we have been looking at in this book. Remember last week, the church was together, praising the Lord for the release of Peter and John, then praying for the church concerning the influence of the church's enemies in the church, that the Lord would keep the church safe, that he would grant them boldness to continue to share the gospel. One thing that we're going to continue, that we'll continue to see in this book, particularly as we read the rest of the New Testament even, is that the church has to also guard itself from within. Almost all of Paul's letters warn us about this apostasy or some sort of trouble within the church. We use the words in our, in, in our uh, tradition called the visible and the invisible church to talk about this distinction. These aren't biblical words, but they are words that talk about biblical ideas for sure. The visible church is everyone who, that are members, everyone that regularly attend, the people that we see every Sunday when we come together, the visible church, the people that you would normally associate with Redeemer community or Christendom uh, at large. You know, those people are Christians. Why? Because, well, they go to church. That's all I know about them. Well, the invisible church are those that are actually believers, actually saved, written in the Lamb's book of life. Only they and the Lord know that distinction. We can't see it. It's the invisible church. Scripture uses word pictures for this idea, like the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And so we we see this on and on throughout Scripture. We see this even in the Old Testament. We studied Saul in 1 Samuel. Probably wasn't a believer, but played the part. We looked at Judas in the book of John as we studied that book. He wasn't a believer, but he definitely played the part. And so today we have two new characters Ananias and Sapphira. And honestly, I'm at a loss to be able to determine whether or not they were believers. We never were never really told anything concerning their belief. We're only told about this particular sin in their lives, which cost them their lives in a very public way. That's really the tension that I want to draw upon. Whether or not they were believer, does it even matter? There's no secret that the visible church is full of people who are playing the part but aren't actually converted. For them, the answer is salvation, Jesus. But what about for those of us who are saved? What if Ananias and Sapphira were saved, but the Lord took them anyway for their sin? It should really cause us to think deeply about what's going on here. And so I want that tension to continue to exist text doesn't answer that question, so we're not going to either. But we're going to look at what this teaches us. Look at me at verse, started with the church united. Look with me at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said to any, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. The church was united in all ways. They were united in belief, they were united in their possessions, meaning that they were sharing with one another. Why were they united in belief? Well, look at 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They sat under the apostles' teaching. 
They was they were teaching Jesus to them. They weren't being filled with words about themselves, but they were being filled with words about Jesus. When we preach and teach Jesus, the true people of God will be united around that. It's just an aside there. But notice what follows from this. What follows from the regular and thorough preaching of the gospel. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. Why? Because people sold their possessions. and The, the apostles distributed the proceeds so that the needy people had what they needed. This is not a proof text for socialism, uh, but rather the way that the early church did things in order to meet the, church, the needs of the church then. This isn't a prescriptive text telling us how we should then do church, but it's descriptive of the way that they did things. However, there is a principle here. What did the gospel drive these folks to do? It drove them to give away their possessions to anyone that had need. Secondly, people weren't afraid to have needs met by the church. Think about that. There weren't people just sitting around secretly needing things. They were open about what they needed. This was the norm for the church. The church took care of its own. Those who had much gave to those who didn't. And isn't this just an outworking of what the gospel is? Jesus, who had much, gave to us who had nothing and deserved nothing. It's really people just understanding the gospel. Who they give away what they had. People who hoard rather than give do not understand the gospel. Jesus warned about this by telling a story when he was alive. Saying about this is the man who, who there was a man who built bigger barns in order to store his more possessions. Because he was one who treasured possessions on earth rather than treasuring God. Rather than understanding the gospel. And he warns against covetousness. And there's a principle here for us that goes deeper than money and possessions. And I want us to understand this. It has to do with the idea of authenticity. What does it take to go to church and say, I have a need? That's tough. Most of us don't want to do that. But the same thing, it takes the same thing as it takes to go to church and say, this is all that I have, take what you need. Those two are the same idea. There's a real authenticity here, I think, that is lacking in the church today. We are afraid to be ourselves because we're afraid to see ourselves as lacking anything. We create a standard really different for every church. Our particular church has one that we may be secret to us even. We just kind of create it. And the church down the street has another kind of standard that they've built for themselves. And when we don't meet that standard, when we never we never really will because it's not a real thing, what do we do? We fake it. We act like we meet that standard. Oh, I don't need anything. Or, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Just take an example. I'll use this example. Most all of us who are parents have a teenager in the house now. A family that's struggling with a teenage child. Rather than come to the church and say, or with that need, and look, they look around and they think, wow, 
No one else is having this kind of trouble. I'm alone. I must be a bad parent. I wish I was more like that one. And they pick someone out, and that's the standard, and they can never meet that standard. And covetousness sets in, the root of many, many sins. I want to be like that person. I'm a bad parent. They're good parents. I want to be them. Or the other side of the coin, seeing that struggle, a family that has raised several teenagers sees the struggle and quietly thinks, why can't they get their act together and raise their kids right? I mean, we didn't have any problems with our kids. We must be great parents. And pride sets in the root of all the other sins that covetousness doesn't doesn't cover. And what is at the end of this? What is at the end of this cycle? The whole church is having these secret conversations inside their own heads with everyone wanting to be someone else and everyone thinking that they're better than someone else. This is a mess, is it not? What's the answer to this mess? If we believe the twofold truth of the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ has provided for me infinitely more than I deserve, and that my righteousness, my goodness, anything good about me, as Todd read from Romans 3 this morning, there's nothing good about me, so anything good and righteous about me is his, not mine. Then we are free, not only, if we believe those things, we are free not only to be authentic when it comes to our own needs, yes, I need something, but also when it comes to our ability to meet the needs of others. We are free to do that as well. I'm free to say I don't know what to do with my kids. Please help me. Why? Because my righteousness has nothing to do with my ability to raise my kids. And it's okay to ask for help. And I'm also free to say, I've raised a few kids. I can and I should help. Why? Because your kids turning out great had nothing to do with you. Because everything good is from above and our ability is measured as filthy rags at best. Jesus Christ is the one that is good. We are free to be authentic because of this as a church. Not doing so, not being authentic, is extremely dangerous. And everyone in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that brings us to the next point, the church divided. We first get this little bit about Barnabas there at the end of chapter 4. We'll talk about Barnabas later. He was a major character in the book of Acts. I think Luke just kind of tossed him in here so we can be introduced to him. But notice what's going on in verse in chapter 5 verse 1. We have this great story of the church. Everybody's meeting each other's needs. There was no needs. They were listening to the gospel. Everything's great. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. And we see this word but it should tell us things are about to change. It is not as what we thought. Everything is not great. The whole church was together, meeting the needs of others, but this man and his wife did this thing that was bad. But in direct contrast to how the church had been dealing with each other, this is the opposite of meeting one another's needs, and no one was needy. While the church had been completely honest in its dealings, these two were choosing not to be. And some questions arise. Well, did they have to sell the land? No, but they did. And they chose to lie about it. 
It's almost as if they were getting on the everyone selling their land bandwagon, but they really weren't committed to helping the church. They were like, we just want to be seen as the people that are helping out, but here we're going to keep enough so that we're not struggling with that. They weren't being forced to sell their land, but if they were going to do it, they should say, this is the price that we got. They should tell the truth, but they did not do that. So what does Peter do? Calls them on the carpets for this. And what is their sin? What does he tell them? Is their sin that they lied to the Holy Spirit of God? And then look at verse four. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And in verse 3, he says he lied to the Holy Spirit. So what is Peter saying about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. And he's also, what else is he saying about the Spirit? The Spirit is a person of the Trinity. You cannot lie to an impersonal force. You can't lie to just something that's out there that's not personal. You lie to a person. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God. This is a great proof text for that uh, biblical truth. So, this should serve as a warning to us. This passage is not calling us to sell everything that we have and give to the church. So please don't see that. This passage is calling us to authenticity when it comes to the church. What is at stake? Like we talked about earlier, the church is at stake. The health and vitality of the church is at stake. If they were to get away, just think about this for a moment. If this story is different and they were to get away with holding a little bit back, they held a little bit back and they got away with it. No one found out. Everyone starts to think, well, maybe I should have done the same thing. And everyone starts holding a little bit back. And again, it's not the issue of the money and selling the land. It's the issue of this lack of authenticity, these secret conversations that people are having in their heads. If we get away with keeping a little bit back, then everyone's going to start doing it. Everyone's going to start lying. Consider the state of the, the current state of our church, not this particular body, praise be to God, but the church as a whole. If the pastor down the road is filling his streets or filling his seats by preaching about puppies and ice cream sundaes, well, I want to fill my seats too by doing that. And guess what the church is going to start doing? Preaching not Jesus, but preaching everything else. Because the people don't want to hear about Jesus. It brings them face to face with their sin. It's easy to do. The church is singing songs that have nothing to do with Jesus, then guess what we should do? It seems to be working for them, so we should do that, right? Well, that family's, or that deacon's family plays soccer on Sundays. Maybe we should too. Maybe we should just throw the Sabbath day out the window. Because everyone else is doing it. We could easily keep going on and on and on with these things, could we not? But any lack of honesty and authenticity puts a crack in the house of God. And that crack quickly turns into a gaping hole. Thinking about it this way, I think, helps us to understand the actions that the Lord took here. There, this little bit of lying could have blown the church wide open. At a very early and a very important place. That brings us to the next point. The church filled with fear. Verse 5. When Ananias 
heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard it. We don't want to mince words here. We don't want to apologize for the text. Why did he breathe his last? It was the direct judgment of God in his life. He didn't have a heart attack because he was ashamed or some of this other stuff that I've heard. The Lord judged him directly right there on the spot. Sapphira was given the opportunity to tell the truth. She didn't do that. She suffers the exact same fate. Our fate. And guess what happens to the church? Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Not just the church, but people outside the church were hearing these things and great fear came upon them. Great fear came upon them. What is this fear? See this out throughout all of Scripture. The fear of the Lord. A very important idea in Scripture. One that we could spend weeks on, really, if we wanted to dive into that as a theme. However, I'm going to sum it up very succinctly. The fear of the Lord is knowing, knowing how good the Lord is, how much He hates sin, and then knowing how He should then handle my sin. I'll say it again, knowing how good the Lord is, knowing how much he hates sin, and then knowing how he should handle my sin as a result of that. He is infinitely good and infinitely just. He hates sin with all his being. His wrath is forever set against sin, and he should handle us according to our sin. By snuffing us out as soon as we were born, really. Since we were conceived in sin. Every sin after that. Every single one of them. We deserve to die because of it. People might say something like, well, well, my God isn't like that. He's a loving God. But, But what about Jesus, right? Yes, He is a loving God. But what does that have to do with you being a sinner that's deserving of His death and judgment? And yes, Jesus covered our sins and we are safe with him for all eternity, those of us who have called upon his name. But what do our sins still merit? Consequences here on earth. Do we not have consequences for our sin? Is God not ultimately responsible for carrying out those consequences, whatever they are? Absolutely he is. That is the tension of this verse. That is the fear of that they all felt. Whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were believers, everyone there saw them as a part of the church. Everyone knew who those people were. That's Ananias and Sapphira. We know them. We have dinner with them. They're part of the church. Now they're dead because they lied. God was protecting his church. Imagine this question floating around that morning after watching that. Which other people deserve to die because of the sins they committed? Am I next? Every one of them deserved to die, did they not? Why didn't they? Mercy. Now, the wrong fear to have, and make sure we understand this, the wrong fear to have is the constantly thinking, oh no, I'm next. That's not the way to to think about this. If you're paranoid that God is coming to get you, 
then you probably need the gospel more and more. God saved you. Who did he save you from? Himself. In Jesus Christ. There's no need for paranoia. What did Jesus tell us to do in him? Rest. So what is the right fear for us to have? This is a hard question. God is good. God is just. God hates sin. I sin. The right fear should cause us to know more and more about our sin. And cling closer and closer to the one who delivered us. Jesus Christ. We need not fear the trials of life, whatever they are, because they ultimately have no control over us. Or us over them, for that matter. But the right fear is knowing that God is good. He is just. And what hope did God offer to us in this? That even while we were his enemies, he died for us. He sent his son to take sin and death that I deserve. We sang this morning from that song. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. God is just, but where did he pour out his justice? Where did he pour out his wrath? On his son. The same good that causes him to judge sin is the good that caused him to set a people aside for himself and deliver them from the foundations of the earth. Jesus, the Son of God, risen from the dead, died because he became sin. He died because the Father could not look on him, because on him were all of my sins and all of your sins. He died because I deserved death. He died so I wouldn't be defeated by death. Will I die? Yes. Will death be the end of me? No. Because I spend eternity with him. And so what should that message then do to us? Look at chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And what happened? And great grace was upon them all. What does the gospel cause us to experience this type of grace that leads us through? And so in conclusion, as a pastor, I honestly want to say as we read this uh, passage and understand this passage, I want to say, now brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let this scare you. If I did that, I think I would be doing the text an injustice. We should see our sin as completely deserving of any type of judgment that he would give us. And our belief in Christ, while freeing us from eternal judgment, while freeing us from eternal damnation, does not free us from having to deal with the consequences of our sin. Whether or not they were believers, Ananias and Sapphira are now completely aware of that. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be aware of our sin. Let it lead us to a greater authenticity that we might be more and more aware of the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. That can only be a good thing for the church. And so, you're not the best in anything. Good, we all struggle. There shouldn't be anyone needy among us. 
And so let us then meet one another's needs. We should all bear one another's burdens. We should all share them together. Let us be people who are not only who not only help those in need, but also people who bury our pride and ask for help when we need it. The Lord is faithful in raising up folks just like us who need help. And he is faithful in raising up folks who will meet those needs. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful for this message. This is tough. But we pray that you would use it to make us more and more authentic in our faith. That we would be willing to not only say, I have a need, I need help. But also say, this is all that I have, take what you need. And so, Lord, help us to be more and more authentic so that the world might see you and know that you are the Savior of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.